Back in December, our then AV person, Jack, agreed to take a look at the sanctuary sound system. After years of being a little temperamental, one day during quarantine, I had turned it on and nothing came out. Luckily, we didn't need it at the moment, but the thought that we would have to replace it at some point and the expense of replacing it kind of hung over every dream I had of moving back into this space. And then a couple hours after I'd shown Jack over to the ancient soundboard that lives behind the organ, he was calling me. Recording in progress. It's all fixed. Do you want to come listen? Instead of the ten or $20,000 I was expecting, instead of the month of repairs that I was anticipating, we'd given Jack an extra $50, and now it worked. Every speaker, every microphone, it was better news than I could have possibly hoped for. I called Rebecca right away. I, I announced it at council that month. I told people who had never stepped foot in Bethany about it anytime I talked to anyone. Finally, something was easier than I thought it would be. Finally, a pandemic era problem that didn't take three times as long as I anticipated to fix it. Finally, the way was cleared for us to be back here once it was time, finally something to celebrate. And then, this week, a few hours before the Ash Wednesday service, after the ribbons had been tied and the ashes mixed and with a tablecloth on the welcome table and the newly replaced sanctuary lights just a little dimmed, I flipped the switch on the soundboard and came out for a sound check, and I spoke into the microphone and heard this buzzy, crackling, indecipherable version of my voice. Not panicked yet, I plugged the mic into another one of the jacks, and I heard a pop. Maybe a good pop? Not a good pop. I went back, and there was no sound at all. And I felt foolish, foolish for every person that I had told about our good luck, foolish for announcing it with such fanfare everywhere I had gone, and foolish especially for planning a big celebration for this morning, for scheduling this joyous re-entry. We were bringing donuts, and, and Johnny had provided beautiful flowers and Paul and Mayor had gotten up on a ladder and taken down the tattered sign that had been blowing in the wind for a month. And we were going to meet on the steps in this big dramatic gesture, coming back into this place after two years. And now the first thing that you would see when we came through those doors is these big black speakers. And feeling foolish about the speakers, I started to feel foolish about the whole thing, about deciding that this was a Sunday for celebration. I mean, it's the first Sunday of Lent, for one. Like, you're not supposed to meet your congregation with donuts outside. That's like kind of the big thing about Lent. You don't get donuts. And it's still a pandemic for another thing. Like, yes, the numbers are low enough right now that we're back here together, but in a month, we don't know what will come. 
And most of all, it's a week when we've been watching footage of buildings being bombed and families fleeing for their lives, reading headlines of cities that are captured and negotiations that have failed, hearing thinly veiled threats that we don't know what they mean for us. It's a week of heartbreak, a week of uncertainty, a week with a broken sound system, a week when it's too soon to celebrate. It's a problem people warn you about, like counting your chickens before they hatch, jumping the gun, spiking the football before you've crossed the end zone. Actually, the internet is full of examples from sports. People whose excitement got the better of them, who celebrated a little too soon. It's, it's not a good look. At best, you seem foolish, impatient, like if you just waited a yard longer. And at worst, you seem callous, playing fiddle while the city burns, blithely ignoring people's pain while you party. I'm sure someone told Miriam as much. The Hebrew people did have things to celebrate. They'd escaped slavery, they'd risen up against their taskmasters and been pursued by Pharaoh's army, found themselves with their backs against the Red Sea, and then been miraculously delivered. And they landed on that far shore, bruised and breathless, entirely wrung out, sprawled out in the sand, the blood of their attackers still red in the waves at their feet. Yeah. And before they can even register what has happened, Miriam is up on her feet and singing a song of praise. Yep. A song of victory, a song of celebration. Sing to the Lord, for God has triumphed gloriously. And from the few things that she was able to escape with and carry on her back, she draws out a tambourine to accompany herself. And soon on sore feet, she begins a hobbled dance, using her last ounces of energy to raise her voice over the churn of the sea. And then some of her friends start to join her. They bring out hand drums and horns and ignore aching backs and empty stomachs and find their way into this dance. And soon all of the people are singing and playing and sobbing their song of praise. And the bloody beach becomes a dance party, the people stomping and shaking and shouting their deliverance their victory, their release, that somehow they have made it through this ordeal and their newfound God led them there. And I say all the people joined in, but I'm sure that's not really true. I have to believe like a few hung back, pointed out that they hadn't even put the tents up yet. I have to believe like a few people tried to warn them, tried to tell them it was too soon. But did anyone listen over the music? And sure enough, the next morning, the Hebrew people wake in the sand, their throats parched from singing, and they find they have nothing to drink. 
The Red Sea is some of the saltiest water on earth, so they travel on, figuring they'll, they'll find something. But that night when they make camp, they haven't seen a stream or a spring all day. And the next day is the same, and the next. And then finally, they're dying of thirst, literally dying of thirst. And they see water in the distance, and they start to run to it with everything they have left. And the first ones to arrive drop to their knees and cup their hands together and start taking big, long gulps. And immediately, they're gagging and retching, spitting out the bitter water. That must have been the moment when it came out. When the people who hadn't wanted to celebrate in the first place started to say, I told you so. There at Mara, with water they couldn't drink, completely dehydrated, with no idea of where to go or what to do. That must have been when they started in. Where's your victory dance now? You want to sing a song of praise here in the middle of nowhere, no food, nothing to drink, people dying? Do you want to throw another party? And Miriam must have felt foolish. I mean, the tambourine rattling in her bag with every step through the desert. That victory song that she had sung stuck in her head over those long, thirsty days. She must have regretted every excited word of it. How silly, how premature. If only she'd waited, just, just until they got settled, just until they were established, until they were really in the clear. Of course it had been too soon for celebration. If only she'd waited till they had, had wells or, or homes, till they were at home in the land that God had promised them. Then it would be time to dance and sing. Not now when there's still so much uncertainty, so much fear. When there were people dying, it was too soon to celebrate. Cut to 39 years later. The people are still in the wilderness. Still wandering, not yet settled, not yet safe, not yet home. But instead of regretting it, they've already started to tell themselves the story. The story they will repeat to themselves for generation upon generation until they finally write it down, but it's already sacred for them. The story of how on that far shore, more tired than they had ever been before or since. No idea of where their next meal would come from. No thought of their quickly emptying canteens. They rose to their broken feet and raised their cracked voices and had a party. They don't leave it out how at first they felt foolish about it. Clueless, callous. How at first they feared it was too soon. But then as the weeks and months and years added up, they realized that if they had waited, if they waited until they were settled, they might never party again. 
If they waited till they were safe, their tambourines would rust in the meantime. And as they looked back at that night and told that story and felt what it was like to be too excited to control themselves, when they remembered what it was like to sing a victory song at the tops of their lungs, they felt just a little bit of that victory cutting through their hunger and thirst, and they realized that they would never have made it this far through the wilderness if they hadn't danced. They could never have survived if they hadn't celebrated along the way. Our misgivings about celebration rarely go the other direction. Like, I've never worried that I waited too long to celebrate. I've seldom heard anyone say that they felt guilty for being so serious while there were people in the world falling in love. No one has ever told me they felt bad for feeling bad when there were countries somewhere living in peace. Sadness and seriousness always feel like a responsibility and joy feels like a treat, like an indulgence, something I can only allow myself when everything is finally right, finally settled, finally just, finally peaceful, when everything is finally okay, that, that's when I'll be allowed to celebrate. But if it's true, how will I ever make it to that moment without dancing and singing and donuts? If it's true, how would we know what to do with ourselves if we finally got there, if we never practiced practiced for it along the way. At the end of her autobiography, Dorothy Day says, it's not always easy to be joyful, to keep in mind the duty of delight. Delight, not an indulgence, not a treat, nothing frivolous, nothing foolish, a duty of delight a responsibility to celebrate, the hard work of joy in a world that gives us too many reasons not to be joyful. So today we do our duty, never ignoring the very real pain, the very real brokenness in our world and in our lives, but knowing that it is a long road to justice, a long way to peace. And we will never get there without joy to sustain us. Today we celebrate not because the journey is over, but because we have made it this far. And this is something to celebrate. Because we are in this beautiful place again. And the moment I mentioned to Rebecca the idea that we would start out there with the doors open and come in together, we both started crying, and it seemed like a good day to celebrate. We are beside these beloved people and in the presence of the God who is leading us toward our promised home. We have a long way to go until everyone is safe at home. So take this in. You'll need it. <laughs>